I know you haven't heard this in a while, but this episode is brought to you by Audible. As you may know, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of quality audiobooks. They have tens of thousands. You should check it out. I'm still a member after all these years, and I love it. Almost as much as podcasting. I know this is a little bit ahead of our story by one year, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I certainly did. It's um, a book called At All Costs by Sam Moses. And uh, I'll read the little uh, intro to you. In 1942, the island of Malta was the most heavily bombed place on Earth. Its submarine and air attacks on Axis supply convoys were all that kept Rommel from marching across North Africa. But Malta was out of fuel. Operation Pedestal was Malta's last hope. A giant convoy with more than 50 warships escorting 13 freighters and one life-or-death oil tanker, the SS Ohio, which was carrying just over 100,000 barrels of oil from Texas. And it was bombed, torpedoed, attacked over and over again, and eventually abandoned. And it's damaged and it's sinking. But two American merchant mariners um, jump aboard, uh, re- repair the guns enough, and literally take on the uh, the attacks by the Axis while this thing is being towed on its way to Malta while it's sinking. So it's an amazing story. Obviously, it makes it. Um, Malta is resupplied, and Rommel is, you know, they're able to push him back. But it is an absolutely amazing story. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. And as you may remember, it's been a while since I've done this. Um, if you go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, find the uh, Audible link and click on that, sign up for membership. Um, whether you keep the membership or not, you still get to keep the free audiobook. But you should seriously consider it because you get great deals. And I hope you get it, and I hope you'll enjoy it a lot. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 110, Back the Way We Came. When Rommel was in Berlin during the third week of March 1941, getting nowhere with Field Marshal von Braulich, C and C of the German Army, but getting much further with Hitler, he told both men the same thing. It was not possible to just take Benghazi or a slice of Cyrenaica, not with what he had at the moment. If Berlin wanted the Allies checked, he needed to do it his way. Otherwise, why put him in charge? But to be clear, Rama wasn't advocating going against orders. Truly, he was seeking orders to take the land bulge the Allies held. But all we know is that Braulich said no, and Hitler said something other than no. So, when Rommel returned to North Africa and launched strike at the Commonwealth forces at El Aguila, he was literally seeing what would happen. Might as well make the Allies show their hand and their intentions in Cyrenaica. He was. On March 24th, the British-led force was attacked at Al Aguila by Major General Strike's 5th Light Division. The Allies held, but were badly shaken. The next day, Rommel unleashed Verkmar's 3rd Reconnaissance Unit to finish the job and eject the Commonwealth forces, which they did. The previous victorious forces under O'Connor now found themselves retiring 30 miles east to the Delphile of Mursa Brega, again along the coast. The waves of this military turnabout rippled out, all the way back to London. Proving he still possessed his battle sense, Churchill, smelling something most foul, contacted Wavell on March 26th. 
Quote, we are naturally concerned at rapid German advances to Aguila. It is their habit to push on whenever they are not resisted. I presume you are only waiting for the tortoise to stick his head out far enough before chopping it off. It seems extremely important to give them an early taste of our quality. What is the state and location of the 7th Armored Division? Pray give me your appreciation. Unquote. In all fairness, this from the man who so denuded the Cyrenaica command as to ensure the safety of all turtles in the area, much less more numerous and better equipped Germans. And Wavell had come to know his prime minister. He knew how to play the game and when not to rise to the bait. Churchill was a master at leading the witness. Wavell's reply was honest, forthright, but not reassuring, because it was the truth. Quote, I have to admit to having taken considerable risk in Cyrenaica after capture of Benghazi in order to provide maximum support for Greece. I therefore made arrangements to leave only small armored force and only partially trained Australian division in Cyrenaica. Next month or two will be anxious. Unquote. As for the rest of what he said, it's not important. In the next month or two, Wavell's world would be turned upside down. The following communication between Churchill and Wavell for the next few weeks was really not that important to the Allied ability to defend that part of North Africa. No, the correspondence of the time was for the ages. Wavell regularly complained about a lack of trucks and how upset he was that the Royal Navy and RAF could not do more to stop the Germans from landing men in Tripoli. So, if he succeeded, he would look brilliant against incredible odds. If he failed, then he had others to blame. But Wavell, nor anyone else wearing an Allied uniform in North Africa, would look brilliant in the near future. As touching the Battle of Supplies, his main thrust was, since early March, Axis convoys, made up of about four ships each, had been leaving the Italians' west coast ports twice a week. By the 15th of March, German vessels had deposited about 25,000 men, 8,500 vehicles, and just over 25,000 tons of ammunition on the Tripoli shore. And by taking the following route, the vast majority of German and Italian ships made it to their destination. They would stay close to the northern coast of Sicily, crossing over to the Tunisian coast under darkness, and cover the last part, making it to Tripoli, by entering French territorial waters. Before the Germans came, the British had tied their own hands by not allowing small, unescorted convoys to be attacked at least until they were less than 30 miles from the Libyan coast, with their destination obvious. But in the near future, as the Desert Fox became more of a thorn in the Allies' side, these rules would be lifted. Still, the victory in the waters just above Tripoli was clearly an Axis one. Between February and May, only nine German ships were sunk. The Italians lost 31. What made this successful transfer of weapons and men possible, besides slipping into neutral French waters, was twofold. First, the pounding Malta received at the hands of Flieger Corps 10 since January meant that there were far fewer Allied reconnaissance flights coming from the battered island, 
An invisible enemy is a safe enemy. Moreover, Flieger Corps 10, stationed in Sicily, made journeys into the central Mediterranean dangerous for British cruisers and submarines near Malta. But even further weakening the Allies were all the planes and British ships protecting convoys to and from Greece. As El Aguila fell into Axis hand, Admiral Cunningham received ultra-interpreted Italian signals and movements from the Italian fleet. Something was up. What was up was German pressure on the Italian Navy. As it became clear that the Allies were sending troops to Greece, Germany wanted the convoys brought to a halt. Hitler needed Greece subdued as quickly as possible so he could get on with his real goal, the destruction of Stalin and the USSR. At least all of it west of the Ural Mountains. So now en route to Crete was Vice Admiral Angelo Iacchino on his battleship Victorio Veneto, along with eight cruisers and 17 destroyers. Their goal was to make sure that as many of the Allied ships as possible that were found were sent to the bottom of the Mediterranean. But this challenge had to be met. First, Admiral Cunningham had British shipping altered as to clear out the non-warships from the waters south of Greece, but hopefully in a way as to not alarm the Italians. That done, it was time for some trickery. Cunningham spent March 27th at his club in Alexandria, knowing the Japanese consul, the spy everyone knew was a spy, was watching him, as well as the comings and goings of the ships as he played golf. But that night, Cunningham's fleet, three battleships, a carrier, and nine destroyers, raised steam and slipped out of Alexandria, with Cunningham climbing aboard at the last second. The golfing spy was fooled, as were the four Italian subs on patrol nearby. Vice Admiral Iacchino had planned on splitting his force and having a wing each sail north and south of Crete, hopefully catching convoys either way and making sure they never got to the mainland. But early on March 27th, the Vice Admiral was radioed that the British had spotted a group of his cruisers. A few hours later, he learned that the carrier Formidable had put to sea. With flashes of Taranto playing in his mind, Yakino seriously considered canceling the entire operation. Yet the word was not given. Yakino's cryptographers then intercepted British signals. They hadn't broken them yet and so couldn't read them. But obviously, the enemy was coordinating, either to attack him or simply warning any convoys away or both, which meant, as there were now no troop ships to sink, the entire sortie was pointless, worse, dangerous, with nothing to be gained. Yet the Germans pressured him via radio to do something, and this message echoed Yakino's very words of the last few weeks. He was one of the few fire-eaters within the Italian Navy, which meant the Italian naval force would maintain its easterly course. Of course, Yakino was no fool. There was no longer any reason to divide his forces. They would remain intact and head to the south of Crete. No sense exposing his ships to British air power stationed on the mainland. At 0700 the next morning, March 28th, scout planes from Formidable laid eyes on Yakino's fleet, about 30 nautical miles south of Crete, 
and 90 miles east of the oncoming British fleet. Soon after, the Italian fleet exchanged salvos with a few cruisers Cunningham had stationed just below the island. However, no significant damage was achieved by either party. Around 2 p.m., the Vice Admiral decided nothing could be accomplished here, so turned his ships northwest and raised steam. But about this time, five Albacore bi-wing torpedo bombers from the Formidable came upon the scene and started their attack. The Albacore had come into service just the year before to replace the Swordfish and could carry a 1,610-pound torpedo 930 miles, 400 miles further than the older Swordfish. Yet only one aircraft hit the Victorio Veneto, managing to damage a screw on its port side. The battleship was slowed a bit by the hit, but not much. Then Crete-based British bombers attacked the retreating ships, but again, no blood was drawn. Still, the second attack shook the Vice Admiral enough to radio for air cover. But, as he was at the end of the operational range of Flieger Corps 10, only one Messerschmitt 110 showed up, flew over the damaged ship for about 10 minutes, and then headed for home. As the sun set, one of Formidable's scout planes spotted the Italian fleet, still about 50 miles ahead of the British ships. Yakino had arranged his ships into five columns around his damaged flagship, which could now only manage 12 knots. Admiral Cunningham was determined not to let the Italians get away, so other albacores from Crete were sent aloft, located the retreating ships, flew through their searchlights, smoke screens, and anti-aircraft fire, and launched a torpedo that hit the cruiser Pola almost in its exact center. Immediately, the cruiser's circuits went out. The boilers were flooded. The Pola was dead in the water. Good, Cunningham probably thought, but not good enough. The Admiral had his fleet at best speed trying to reach the Italians before daybreak, when they would once again be under the protective umbrella of Flieger Corps 10. So on came his fleet. Before too long, HMS Valiant's radar picked up a stopped ship about six miles ahead. All concerned, sailing under the Union Jack, prayed it was the Vittorio Veneto. But it was not. The lifeless Pola waited for the British ships to approach. And Cunningham's ships came on, but warily. Suddenly, at 22.30, 10.30 at night, the watch discovered a break in the waterline about two miles directly ahead. They were the cruisers Zara and Fiume, along with a destroyer escort. But as the Italians had no air reconnaissance or radar, and so couldn't know of the approaching enemy, had sent back these ships for a rescue mission. Meanwhile, the British, who possessed what the Italians did not, plus short-range radios, were able to silently communicate the presence of the oncoming ships. Then what happened, happened within mere minutes. The Greyhound, at the head of the British line, switched on its searchlight and lit up the fume. Next, the firing gongs went off on the Warspite and the Valiant, as shells were hurled from the vessels. Within seconds, those very shells followed the trail of the searchlight and found their mark. The fume was then even brighter, as explosions seemed to come from its entire surface. 
Cunningham and his men watched as the Fiume's aft turret came loose, fell over, and disappeared beneath the waves. The rest of the ship was soon to follow. Wasting no time, the British vessels then turned to the Zara, who would share the same fate. For a minute, the Italian sailors could be seen scrambling to battle stations. But by the next minute, they were leaping over the side as the Zara was disfigured within three minutes of the first salvo shot at her. Next, the Greyhound's lights found the Italian destroyer Alfiere, and as it was only 3,000 meters from the Barham, was hit and mangled within a matter of minutes. Yet there were other Italian destroyers coming on. One of them managed to launch a torpedo, which forced Cunningham to turn his battleships away. Whatever victories were still to be had this night were to be those of his destroyers. And it was the steward that had that victory, catching the Garducci and damaging it with its shells and torpedoes. The two other destroyers managed to escape and made for Taranto. Still, Cunningham, as was his way, was hoping for more. He had his destroyers, plus two others that came onto the scene, prowl around the darkened Pola. Perhaps there might be another rescue attempt. Perhaps the Pola was plain dead and might launch a torpedo at the circling British vessels. But after putting two shells into her, Cunningham was convinced the Pola was harmless. So the destroyer Jervis drew rescue duty and came alongside the listing ship. 257 mostly drunken Italian sailors were offloaded. But the search for the survivors in the water had to be called off at first light as German aircraft arrived on the scene. Not to rescue anyone, but to sink Cunningham's ships. The British ships turned and made best speed for Alexandria. All told, the Italians had lost three cruisers and two destroyers, as well as just under 2,400 men. At the end of March, things looked good for the Allies. Their convoys were safe, and Commonwealth forces were being unloaded in Greece. But it was, all of it, about to come crashing down. Rommel had stopped his advance after taking El Aguila for about a week, but he wasn't resting himself or his men. He wasn't having equipment repaired. He was spying on the Commonwealth forces stationed at Mercer Brega, about 30 miles northeast along the coast from El Aguila. He was also taking the pulse of his immediate supervisor, General Garibaldi. He stressed to the Italian general that it was important to, one, not allow the British-led forces to build up an impenetrable defensive wall at Mercer Brega, and two, to ascertain how solid were their intentions in defending this doorway to Cyrenaica. And to Rommel, both could be done with one stroke. On paper, this advance was called a reconnaissance in force, and so labeled General Garibaldi accepted it, provided the now German-led Axis forces did not turn the corner and enter the bulge of Cyrenaica. Rommel dutifully radioed Berlin of his intentions, and they parroted Garibaldi's concerns and limitations. But again, it must be said, Rommel wasn't trying to disobey orders. He was seeking clarification of what he could do on his terms. 
Rommel's attack on Mercer Brega started at 10 a.m. on March 31st. On paper, it wasn't anywhere close to a fair fight. Streich and his 5th Light Division, which would eventually duel with Gambier Perry's 2nd Armor Division, had the Allies beat in every category but artillery. But, as we have seen, the Italians had O'Connor and the Greeks dwarfed in that same category. For all the good it did them. Also, the 5th Panzer was bringing 150 tanks to this battle, and strikes were either new or well-maintained medium tank, whereas the 3rd Armor Brigade of the 2nd Armored Division consisted of 70 cruisers, light tanks, or worse, captured Italian M13 tanks. The very machines, the Desert Rats, had mocked. And, as already covered, the Germans were bringing two machine gun battalions, two anti-tank battalions, along with several 50mm anti-tank guns. But what's more, also a few of their 88mm anti-air, anti-tank guns, which were about to enter the annals of history in their own right. As for the manpower, all the Allies had were Gambier Perry's infantry, the Tower Hamlet's motor battalion, which was supported by one two-pounder anti-tank battery and one 40-millimeter Borfors anti-tank battery. The British also had 24 artillery pieces, the Axis, half that number. Back to the boots on the ground, the Allies, further behind the lines, had the 9th Australian Division, but Rommel had access to five Italian divisions. One, the Arite, was armored. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As was common in this new era of war, air power mattered greatly. And here again, the Germans were bringing more to the fight. Flieger Corps 10, protecting the skies over Rommel, had 50 dive bombers and 20 twin-engine fighters. The Commonwealth forces had to thwart this with a combination of 30 bombers and fighters. However, if Axis air power sustained losses, there were more in Sicily. Group Captain Brown the RAF commander in Cyrenaica had all he was getting. The rest, yes, were en route to Greece. The Axis forces came at Mercer Brega at 10 that morning of March 31st. The Allies' defensive plan was straightforward, but potentially effective. 
The Tower Hamlet's infantry, supported by the weakened artillery support group, held a line along the eight-mile-wide town of Mercer Brega. Meanwhile, Brigadier Remington's 3rd Armored Brigade, stationed desert side of the town, was so positioned as to flank any attacking force. Strike came on, supported by dog bombers, yet his first attack was repulsed. Thus, having stymied the Germans, the artillery commander, Lathan, asked Remington to commence his flanking attack that would, hopefully, drive the Germans into the sea. But then Gambier Perry, catching wind of this, canceled the order, as he did not believe the armored swing could be coordinated efficiently enough. This allowed the dazed Germans to gather themselves. So, Strike came on again later that day, at 5.30 in the afternoon. Again, he was supported by dive bombers, yet again the Germans were stymied. Artillery Commander Lathan was just as pleased and shocked as everyone else at their success. But then, they all realized, this second repulse was for nothing, as their tanks, in whatever condition and whatever numbers, were not coming. The exhausted men knew they could not hold out forever. Their job was to just bring the Germans up short, and they had done that twice. Gambier Perry was ignoring the very plan in place to defend Mersa Brega. The infantry and artillery would hold up the attack, then the armor would swing around and tear into the Germans. But if the armor was not allowed to move, then the infantry and artillery were sitting ducks. It was only a matter of time before the Germans tried something else, used their more numerous aircraft, or simply barreled in with even more troops, tanks, guns, and planes. It was suicide to stay. When night came, the Germans would be back. So, Lathan sought and was given permission to abandon Mercer Brega and make for Agabadia, about 50 miles to the northeast, but more off the coastline with the 3rd Armored protecting their desert flank. Neem had agreed to this, because he saw it as adhering to Wavell's idea of trading space for time. But one has to think, if O'Connor or Wavell were on the spot, the armor would have been sent in, the Germans given a bloody nose, and perhaps thrown a monkey wrench into Rommel's plans, maybe even forcing the Desert Fox to wait until mid-May for his Panzer Division. But again, that did not happen. Instead, the Allies moved back, and the door to Cyrenaica was opened, which is exactly what Rommel needed, so as to have enough room to deploy his more numerous forces, if he could get permission, that is. The next morning, April 1st, Rommel satisfied himself with watching the Allies retreat to Agabadia in relatively good order. The infantry hugged the coastline, Along the Balbia Road, the armor on its desert flank. General Neem had figured out that the Axis were heading for Benghazi, and it was his job to slow their progress as much as possible. However, the Germans may also decide to cut across the desert, a la O'Connor's route that led to the Battle of Betafalm, so that had to be covered as well. If this second alternative was tried, their first target would be Antilat, located about 35 miles northeast of Agabadia, further within the desert. During that day of April 1st, the Germans did not press the retreating Commonwealth forces too much. 
but they did stay on their heels. On April 2nd, Rommel decided to apply a bit more pressure and see what his adversaries did. He was hoping the infantry-slash-artillery would stay on the coast road and make for Agabadia, while the armor went to Antilat. That way, he would have his choice of whichever weakened force he wanted to act against, with his intact command. The pressure Rommel placed on the infantry and artillery along the coast road was considerable, and as they did not have the tanks to back them up, became unorganized in their retreat. A company of men, just over 100, got separated and were captured. As for the 5th Royal Tank Regiment, further to the east, it was able to check the Axis armor crossing into the desert, but they lost five tanks in destroying three of Rommel's. Not good math, especially as the Allies had fewer tanks to start with. As the sun went down on April 2nd, Gambier Perry could see the riding in the sand. If his forces stayed apart, the Axis would win along the coast road and take Agabadia. He decided it was better to keep his men together and have them all cover Antilat deeper in the desert. If Ronald wanted Cyrenaica, he would have to fight all the way around its perimeter, taking the long way and taking much more time. Again, this was Gambier Perry thinking that this was what Neem was thinking, that Wavell was thinking. So, off went a request from Gambier Perry to Neem, asking to use all of his forces to protect the deeper, more direct desert roads of Cyrenaica. And, as the commander on the scene believed the answer would be affirmative, he had already started moving his men and artillery along the road to Antilat. And, just to make sure the response from Neem was in the affirmative, Gambier Perry reported his remaining armored forces thusly. Only 22 cruisers and 25 light tanks. And, losing a tank about every 10 miles, due to tough terrain. And, Neem was about to give Gambier Perry the order to carry on. But then, C&C Wavell showed up from Cairo. His battle instincts were kicking in and he countermanded Neem. Wavell told his shocked subordinate that, yes, I told you I'd rather give up Benghazi than have your force mauled, or worse, destroyed. But things have changed. Wavell, looking at a map, said he believed the German-led forces would be satisfied with Agabadia, and so hold up there. Because at Agabadia, the road split, one heading north to Benghazi, the other fork to the northeast for Antilat. Surely they did not have enough forces to attack both routes, or successfully hold one and attack the other. No, the Axis would stop at Agabadia and wait for reinforcements. That seemed, he said with disgust, not to have any trouble in landing at Tripoli. Still, they would get a breather. Accordingly, Wavell had Neem order his infantry forces back to the coast road thus denying Rommel Benghazi. But, as confusion was the order of the day, this new order did not go out until 9 p.m. But what's worse, the Allied armor did not receive the counter-order until 2.25 a.m. This was too much for Wavell. He then had a signal sent to Cairo, and the message was, just like Wavell, to the point. General O'Connor was being ordered 
despite his condition, to come to Cyrenaica and take command. Epilogue Two days after Admiral Cunningham left the scene of the battle and his ships were safe, he communicated with Italian naval officials about there still being a large number of survivors in the water. The Germans certainly weren't going to help. The Italian hospital ship Gradesica found 150 survivors. A few Greek vessels found still more. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to take a moment to thank my uh, newest members, and then I want to play a short clip for you. It's, it's nothing major, but I just found it on YouTube, and I thought it was very uh, charming, if I can say that. Uh, it's about um, Admiral Cunningham's um, battle fleet when they come back from the Battle of uh, Manapan. So it's just a cute little promo, and I just wanted to share it with you. So, um, as far as my new members, I want to say welcome aboard to Michael W. from Willingboro, New Jersey, Greg D. from Greenway, um, and somewhere in the Australian Capital Territory. I have to ask Cameron about that. Um, and then there was Jack F., who was so excited. I think he signed up twice, signed up twice, but he took care of that. And he is from Malton, North Yorkshire in the UK. And then Maxim C. from Brooklyn, New York. And there's one thing I need to really clear up, and I am so sorry about this. Aaron W. from last from last episode, there were actually two Aaron W.s. The one I wanted to thank for buying a Churchill mug and sending a donation so I could buy the book, The Battle of the Atlantic, is actually from Nova Scotia, obviously where the greatest people in the world live. So, Aaron, I'm really sorry about the confusion. I know you don't want me to make a big deal out of it, but I just wanted to give credit where credit was due. And here's that little clip, and I will see you all as soon as I can with episode 111. Our Navy's brilliant victory over the Italian fleet in the Battle of Cape Matapan brought us yet more prisoners. Even a newsreel editor hardly knows what to do with them. Well, shaking ourselves free from their depressing appearance for a moment, we watch with pride the return of our victorious ships to Alexandria. Fifteen-inch shells from war spikes did grand work in the battle. They sent the Watt cruiser Fume to the bottom and helped the Zara on her way to Davy Jones's locker. With the Polar, also sunk, went the heavier ships of the Italian cruiser fleet, and our Navy lost not a man, not a ship, and not even a square inch of paint. Ladies and gentlemen, we take the utmost pride in again presenting a portrait of the victor of Cape Matapan, Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.